0: The following is a presentation of the Retro Network.
1: Two men with identities forged in the white hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme. And what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation? If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to part two of the Garib Sheamus interview. I'm sure you were as dazzled as we were by all the stories in part one, and there is more in store for those of you who somehow caught this but not part one. Make sure that you go back in our podcast feed at wizardscomics.com or your favorite podcatcher and find part one. But now let's get into part two where we explore the world of wizard conventions, their spinoff magazines, and so much more. Take it away, Michael about
2: six years into publication the magazine is so successful you decided to buy chicago comic con and start wizard world conventions what did you learn from that experience of like how to do a convention compared to like now doing like the ace convention stuff like that and how that kind of came about
0: so what was going on at the time was i mean i'd been going to san diego comic con and quite frankly it was boring You know, I knew the owners. I mean, they were very nice, but, but it was boring. There was a a huge emphasis on old, whether it was silver and golden age. And also at the time it was, I I don't want to call it like the independent, but it was also, it was the non-image independent. It was like the San Francisco uh, based independent comics. And that was fine. And there were great comics out of there, but it wasn't anything that was popular. And That's really what the focus was there. I mean, there was a year back in the mid-90s where Marvel didn't even go to San Diego because Mm. it wasn't a show for them. Right. You know, and then they would have a trade day and you'd go to the trade show and it was empty. And I loved that show. I got, Wizard got its start there. We did Wizard One. We did a San Diego Comic-Con version that we wound up giving away there. I can't tell you how many people gave it back to me. (laughs) Really? Had oh, yeah. they had they, they only known? It'd be worth so much money now. No, I know right? already. <laughs> And they wouldn't let us do stuff. We were starting to do like this wheel where people would spin the wheel and would ask us questions and win prizes. And then San Diego didn't want our lines. It was like, are you kidding me? It's like, this is a comic book show. You're supposed to have fun. And I'd been friendly with one of the owners at the Chicago Comic-Con, uh, this guy, Gary Calabano. He was a big dealer back in uh, Chicago, had a lot of stores called Moondogs. And we were selling a lot of wizards. So I was very good friends with him. And he called me up and he's like, look, Garrett, we're having a lot of financial trouble with the show. Are you interested in getting involved with us? I said, as a matter of fact, yeah, I said, you know, I'd be interested in buying it. I'm like, because, you know, we can't do anything in San Diego and every other show is just just literally just old people selling old comic books on tabletops. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I want to get into the show business so that we can actually do stuff that's fun. And my sentiment wasn't it wasn't alone. You know, I was friends with the image guys and they were they were killing it and they wanted to do fun stuff and everybody wanted to do fun stuff. But all these old people kept telling us what we could and couldn't do. You know, to have fun. So I said, screw it. I'm going to buy the Chicago Comic-Con and really show what a Comic-Con needs to be like. And called up everybody and said, we're doing the show. You can do whatever you want. I don't care. Like whatever fun you want to have. Here's the space. I don't care. What can we do? And because I own the magazines at the time, it was like, all right, well, we can promote it in advance. We can share it with the fans. We can create this excitement ahead of time for what we were doing. So we called up all the local retailers and we said, hey, we're doing the show. We put out flyers and posters. We gave them tickets to give away to their fans we, to sell tickets too. You know, we did everything that we possibly could. We called up also because at the time we were dealing with the film and television networks and the video game and toy companies because we were covering that in the magazine. So I called every film studio and television network and video game and toy companies. And my friends were like, you know, at those places they were like, What's a Comic-Con? Like they, they right. didn't even know what it was. It wasn't a, it wasn't it a thing was. for them
2: back then, yeah. No,
0: you know, people have this impression of what a Comic-Con was, but Comic-Con was just short for comic convention. Right. That's all. It was like Federal Express, people called it FedEx because it was easy. Mm-hmm. Comic-Con was just the easy way to call a comic convention. It had no value to it as a brand or a name. It was just a short way of saying comic convention. So then we kind of came up with the, we kind of branded it you know, Wizard World Comic-Con, you know, as it was a brand and we gave it a font, you know, and we showed it in the magazine and then we showed pictures of who was going to be there. We showed what exclusives were going to be and what was happening and then we're going to do panels and who you're going to be able to meet and talk to. And we created this level of excitement, you know, that the industry had not seen ever before, you know, for this. And then one of the other things that we did, we said to people, because we would have a costume contest in the magazine every year. So for Halloween, we would show all our best Halloween costumes. But Mm -hmm. that issue didn't come out until November because we had to wait for people to do their costumes. So we'd show them in our November or December issue, right? So it was always kind of like after the fact. So we put a call out to people and we said, hey, look, our show is going to be in July, August. Do your costumes early and wear them to the show. We're going to do a costume contest and we're going to give out really cool prizes. Which is a huge thing now at these conventions. Yes, So nobody was doing that. Like it wasn't called cosplay at the time. It was just costume content. So we do the show and 20,000 people show up. I mean, it was just extraordinary. We had lines around the building. People were throwing cash at us. It was like impossible to get in. Everybody had the greatest time because we just let everybody do everything. You know, right. fire marshals would give us a hard time. It's like, <laughs> all right, fine. Like, all right, we'll do this. Like we had to pacify everybody. You know, we went into the show thinking, all right, it was just going to be a party for the magazines. It didn't mean to be a business. It just meant to be a party because the magazines were doing so well. And we were just given everything we could away just to like make sure, you know, this party was fun and, and people showed up. Needless to say, it was a massive success. Everybody had the greatest time. Everybody was talking about it. So many people showed up in costumes. And then we were able to show the costumes in the magazine. And at the time, Wizard was in about 75 countries in about a dozen languages. So all of a sudden, when these pictures hit the magazine and the magazines went worldwide, and everyone around the world saw these pictures of the show and of the costumes. They went like, holy shit, this is just insane. And that's when the magazine went crazy, the Comic-Cons went crazy, San Diego went crazy. Everybody wanted to do a Comic-Con and then everybody was ripping us off, but it didn't matter. It actually worked to our benefit because the more people copied us, the more successful we became. And the more Comic-Con became a brand, the more companies felt like they needed to be a part of it. And then that whole thing just exploded like you've never seen before.
2: And they're probably paying you for ad space in the magazine to promote their own conventions as well, which is beneficial for Wizard Magazine as well, because it's in all these different countries, all these different languages now, and they're paying for ad space for you, which is...
0: Yeah, we were pretty smart. We we were very tough at the time. I mean, we were... I don't want to say we weren't an easy company to work with, but we were, we were, we were ball busters. Like we really, we were tough. Like we told people like, you want space at the shows, you got to buy them. Like we really, you know, held people up. Like you, if you want to be a part of this thing, you got to pay. You know, we, we really were trying to, Like, you got to support this. Like, this stuff isn't free. It was expensive. And, you know, if you want it to work, you know, you really have to support it. You can't just show up and take advantage. So, you know, yeah, we really try to get people to that you got to pay for this stuff. You got to be a part of and to be a part of this world. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was actually good because look what you're getting for it. Like, right. You know, you're getting full access to everything. You want to be successful. You got to be there. Yeah.
1: You know, it worked. But now We've been talking a lot about, you know, Wizard specifically and the comic books and all that side of things. But you guys managed to really push beyond that in a major way and become the voice of the other hobbies of pop culture, like with Toy Fair, which became equally as beloved it as wizard. I mean, just like that, there's an amazing magazine, all the action figure news, all the toy news you need. In Quest, now you guys are the source for all the information on the collectible card games. Then Anime Insider, nobody else is publishing like a dedicated magazine to anime, and look where that is today. And then there are others that you're trying to get a foothold in. There's Sci-Fi Invasion, there's Toons Magazine, there's Bean Power, there's In (laughs) Power. Like, you're trying trying your best, and some were more successful than others. Why do you think those core three maybe connect did more than the later attempts.
0: Well, well, to get back to the original thought on the magazines was, I'm sure you've watched Shark Tank. And yeah. a lot of times people come on and they have a really great product, you know, and the sharks will say to them, this is a great product. It's not a company. It's a product. It's not a company. Yep. Mm-hmm. And those businesses, they were products. They weren't industries or they were companies, but it wasn't an industry. We built all of those industries. They wouldn't be industries the way they are today if it wasn't for us again when you go back to take the uh, action figure world yes mattel and hasbro put together action figures but just like in the comic book world the independent people didn't have a way to get to the shelves right because if you were walmart or toys r us or target or kb toys at the time you didn't carry anything but uh mattel or hasbro toy Right. There was no shelf space, there was no access, there was no anything for you to be able to do that. But what we did was we used the power of wizard to show that look at all these independent toys that are possible to be out there. So the first and greatest one was Todd McFarlane, right, right. With, with his spawn toys, right? All of a sudden he had a place to show his spawn toys because we had a magazine that was dedicated to Mattel and Hasbro toys. So Mm -hmm. all of a sudden we could put him on the same footing as everybody else. And now once Todd showed people that you could be an independent toy manufacturer and make it and actually sell thousands of toys and not hundreds of thousands of toys and be a successful toy company, everybody was like, holy shit, like this is huge, right? So all of a sudden everybody started coming out with toys that they could sell into the hobby shops and not have to worry about the mass market. And because there was a magazine like Toy Fair, you had a way to access the fans in a way that you would never, ever be able to. Because, again, there was no social media. Not like people were building databases and had direct-to-consumer businesses. That stuff didn't exist back in those days. So we helped turn the action figure world into an industry. Action Figures was just a category of toys from the toy industry. We helped turn the action figure market into an industry. And then we did the same thing with the card gaming world. It was just Magic Magic the Gathering. It was was just Magic the Gathering. And Magic was extraordinary. And I was friends with Richard Garfield and Peter Atkinson and all the Wizards of the Coast crew. I I love those people. I grew up with them. You know, I love their product. From day one, I thought it was incredible you know, what they were doing. And our team internally, Pat and the whole crew, they loved Magic because they grew up playing D&D. So to have Magic the Gathering, we were huge fans of that. But name a second game at the time. right? It wasn't. So when we started Inquest, we started it with the idea that, hey, not only check out Magic, but there was a lot of other games that you should be uh, checking out. And what do you think was born into that world after that happened? Pokemon. Pokemon right? Yeah. But had we just said magic sucked and given it no whatever and not that it wouldn't have been successful, but but we gave it a, a vehicle. We gave that world a vehicle for independent people to be thinking about, hey, if magic can make it, we can make it, too. And now we have a magazine. And even at the time, Wizards of the Coast had their own magazine. They weren't featuring other people's games. You know, they weren't looking at White Wolf and they weren't looking at all these other uh, game manufacturers that were doing card games. They had no interest in promoting that, but we did. So we helped turn that from a product to an industry. And then the same thing happened in the anime world as well here. But I also give a lot of credit to my buddy, uh, Stu Levy, you know, from Tokyo Pop. He was really on the forefront of the Japanese manga movement. He was a friend of mine, lived in California, and he also lived in Japan. And again, back in those days, you know, it was just not only was it foreign in the sense that it was from another country, it was just such a foreign product. And I was always looking at everything out there and searching for what's fun and cool and interesting. And I was a big uh, kind of manga anime fan back in the day. And uh, and so were our guys internally. And I was friends with Stu, and he was trying to bring over stuff from Japan into the US. And all of a sudden, it started coming over. But nobody could make heads or tails of what was what, like what was good, what was not good. Because I hate to say, because back in the day, a lot of it looked the same, right? And it was very hard to discern one from the other and what was good and what was not good unless you read it so so that's when we started anime insider and that that also i think really helped a lot of companies here get a foothold because they had an entry point into the u.s market and they had a third-party voice into what was good so it was companies like funimation and tokyo pop and a ton of the others you know they now had a way to reach consumers through a a voice that said, hey, again, just like in comic books, this is okay. This is good. You know, you have permission to check this out. We really were influential in all of these areas, you know, turning them into industries and businesses, you know, in a way that that you needed a third-party voice, you know, to do that. And yes, we started a lot of other magazines. You know, I wanted to start a kid's magazine Cause I want, there was so many things that were coming out for kids, right? So like Pokemon, even though it was uh manga and anime related and it was card game related, it was still too young at the right. time for the products that we had. So we wanted to start something for that. There was a lot of animation coming out. Uh, sci-fi properties were becoming really kind of like their own category, you know, cause Star Wars was starting to come back. And a lot of times it just doesn't click, you know, you try to put the same energy into it and you know, for whatever reason, they weren't industries, they were products, or they were right. part of an industry, not an industry.
2: So, but you don't so, know until you try. So Wizard had ceased publication in, in 2011, but you'd already moved on from the company. And by that point, what led you to step away from Wizard and pursue other passions and, and things like that? I was pretty burnt out at the time. We got to the point where the economy
0: was just absolutely dreadful. Oh, yeah, it was horrible. Starting in but, yeah. 2007, eight. Yeah. And then we were hit with a lot of circumstances that, that were kind of beyond our control. One of them was obviously the economy not doing well. And and number two, because of that, inflation was, was pretty rampant and paper prices went through the roof. So yeah. paper was our biggest cost for the whole product. So that happened. When the economy goes bad, the first thing to go is advertising dollars. Right. So the advertising stopped. And then to, to kind of kick us while we were down, it was the whole digital revolution was starting to happen. So the iPhone had just emerged. And then at that point, the web was starting to become a lot more, I don't want to, it wasn't mature, but it was getting more mature for information. It still wasn't a social media part yet, but all of a sudden the Apple, uh, the iPad started coming out, which people were starting to use for news. Mm-hmm. And and that's what happened. News became free. You
2: yeah. know, back then and I used to work for Apple, and I remember when the iPad first came out, you could literally get a subscription of the New York Times on the iPad and read it digitally. And comic books were doing that as well. That's when Comixology and stuff. Was, so yeah, it became a different kind of medium.
0: Yeah, and and people weren't charging, or people would rip them off, and you know, so it was free. Info yeah. was free. So, you know, we would do everything we could to get exclusive information from a company. And then two days before the magazine would come out, some fan got a hold of it and would break online before we had a chance. It was just impossible. And and also, we didn't really have, I hate to say it this way, but we really didn't have great partners or Mm -hmm. partnerships. Marvel and DC were still very difficult to work with. And also, they were not supportive financially the way other companies were for industry-related products. You know, so like companies like Vogue, you know, good times, bad times, the the companies still had to advertise and promote and all these companies pulled back, you know, and they just weren't supportive. And these products, they, they can't survive on their own. You know, they have to survive because the industry gets behind them. And when you didn't have the main players supporting it, it just didn't work. So that was one thing that was happening on on a macro side. Uh, But then something else was was kind of brewing under the surface that I was noticing. And that's when the social media started coming around. And I was noticing, obviously, Facebook was the big one at the time. And all of a sudden, everybody was starting to form groups online and the chat rooms and all of that started getting very, very popular. And and all of a sudden, everybody was like, oh, my God, like nobody's ever going to leave their house. They're just going to stay on social media or in these chat rooms and talk to one another because what do you need to leave for? All your friends are online. Right. And when Facebook first started, it started with the people that you know and how it was evolving very quickly at that time was it was evolving from people, you know, to people that like the same things you like. Right. Because all of a sudden you can communicate with people that didn't live where you lived around the things that you're passionate about. And I started noticing that. and. I started realizing that at some point in time, the trend was going to reverse, meaning people were going to all of a sudden want to go from digital to now, these groups are going to want to get together in real life, in person. And the market was still horrible at the time, but that's when I decided to double down on the Comic-Con side of things. And at the time, we had uh, two or three events. We had uh, Chicago, we had Philly, and then we had either an Austin or we'd do LA. We had a, kind of a few other ones out there. And that's when I said, you know what, we got to become big really fast. And also, quite frankly, I was getting burnt out. These economies were really, really tough. And I was like, the irony is the only way to get out is to get big. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't get myself out of the business being small. I got to get out of there by saying, hey, I'm going to do this. and, And maybe there's somebody else better to run it. So I wound up acquiring about 16 or 18 regional comic cons around cool. the country. Yeah. Um, yeah, we wound up just buying up every regional Comic-Con that we could to kind of put a whole string of them together. And then all of a sudden we went from three to like eight to 12 to I think 18. Ultimately, I think we maxed out at about 24 a year. Wow. Um, yeah. Almost a million people a year through the door. Um, but again, we launched it into a bad economy, but there was something there. You know, the interest was there. The dollars weren't there, but the interest was there because people still had a an excitement for comic books they just weren't spending a lot of money and at some point in time when the economy turned the level of interest would turn into dollars and that's ultimately what wound up happening but by 2012 or so i i had already acquired all the shows started integrating them creating the tour and that's when i kind of stepped back and kind of had to take some time off because at that point you know i'd been doing it uh over probably over 20 years in a row
2: I mean, people still talk to us all the time about Wizard World Philly. Like, they talk about that thing like it was going to Graceland. I don't know what it is about Wizard World Philly in particular. People just go nuts over that one. I don't know why. It's so funny. You know, it was one of those, whereas, you know, San Diego
0: at the time had become more of an entertainment show. Philly became hardcore comics because Marvel and DC were New York based. So just like San Diego was two hours from L.A., it was easy for people from LA to go and have their kind of mini vacation. Philly was two hours from New York and became the New York destination the,
1: yeah i gotta ask this because i mean this has been a journey i mean just this conversation just seeing the evolution of your career and your experiences and all those things but one of the things that was kind of like a core trope that you allowed in the magazine was that they would poke fun at you editorial would have a little bit of fun with the boss because everybody likes to poke fun at their boss uh, and you were the big cheese so you're gonna be the biggest target you know but in, in a fun way that being the case when we have had the former wizard staffers on to talk to we asked them all this question, and we want to give you a chance to get introspective for just a moment. <laughs> no,
2: you're not <laughs> going no, to ask this. No, you're not going to ask. We have.
1: I don't.
0: I'll, I answer anything. I don't oh. care. Oh, yeah. no. I have, as you can tell, I have thick skin. I don't care
1: if people think <laughs> The fine. question is: Garib Sheamus, cool or fool?
0: What you I actually think it's a lot of both. It's actually I think bold. you're pretty cool personally. I think you're yeah. cool. <laughs> well, look, I, I needed to be cool to fit in to the traditional world, but I had to be foolish to do what I was doing mm-hmm. because nobody was doing it and there was nobody else to do it. You know, I remember like I had a big advertising meeting one year. It was also like early 2000s. Comics were starting to get hot and I was starting to try to reach out to the big advertising agencies. Like I really wanted to start getting out to the video game companies and and people like that like that could spend big bucks with us. So I, I got a meeting at this big advertising agency. I don't remember. They had a lot of consumer goods companies. So they had they had like Mountain Dew and they had video game companies and they had all kinds of like non-traditional advertisers that we wanted to get. And I remember there's probably about 16 to 20 people in this room. I, I just kind of remember like this big, long conference table, like 10 people on either side, women and guys all dressed up in suits. And I wore a suit that day and I do go right into my pitch you know, to everybody about how cool this stuff is and how comic books are hot. And and people are literally laughing at me. Like they're snickering. Like I'm talking to them. I see them talking to each other about what I'm talking about. And then they're laughing with each other and I'm right there. Like I see it. I know they're laughing at me. It didn't go well. Like, I didn't get any ads out of it. Like nobody, but they were saying to me, like, why would we want our cool products next to this geeky nerdy stuff? Right. Like, cause it was a very negative word at the time. And I was like, cause this is the future. This is where it's all going. And, and yeah. no matter how much I did that. So, and when I left that room, I would say to myself, am I crazy? I think I'm the only one that knows what's going on here. Oh, You've yeah. got 20 people and they're all wrong. Mm-hmm. Not one of them is right. They're all wrong. I'm right. And like, I didn't have any self doubt about it. And you have to be foolish. You have to go into it like with this mm-hmm. crazy notion, you know, that you're going to try to convince everybody when that was the mentality at the
2: time. I used to say at this time, like, listen, nerd is the new cool. When you're like a geek and, you know, about, you know, technology or, You know, everybody has their different little geeky thing. Like that's what's cool. And it's especially with social media that sort of opened up that world of like everyone has their little nerdy interests and stuff like that. So I actually have an interest, I, I was thinking about this as we've been talking and I follow you on Instagram and I love how you promote your children and and their ambitions. And I feel like a lot of the Seamus family, you know, you talk about your mom running the shop and you have your brothers and your dad, and it's a very family driven, positive way of being as, as a parent and helping your children grow. And I feel like that comes from your mom and dad. Like I want to cultivate my kids' creativity as they did for me. And I just want to give you kudos for that. And I, I love that sort of thing. It's you know, not really oh, a thank question, you. but, you know, yeah, just... my,
0: no, my kids are the joy of my life. Uh, I had a very, very blessed childhood. I mean, we we were middle class, so it's not like, you know, we had money or whatever, but mm-hmm. Because my parents always had jobs and had now they were entrepreneurs trying to make it. But I had the most loving family. I had three brothers that were my best friends. And I had parents that loved us and that supported us in our interests and our hobbies and made it family stuff. And, you know, a lot of times creativity comes from a negative place. Mm. from a place of hurt or overcoming challenges. And, I, and believe me, I've had tons of negative things and not good things happen to me or got involved with, you know, bad people or, you know, people that want to take advantage and all, like everything that you can imagine. And I'm, but I'm still a very kind of rose-colored glasses, positive person. But I never lose sight of the fact that I had a very blessed childhood, you know? And a lot of people that create, you know, there was a death, a love lost, a mm-hmm. this or that. Like, look at all the... The biggest songs of all time, right? Or because you know your boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with you, or somebody passed away. Yeah, they they
2: stem from something. some sort of heartache, yeah, or. Right. Stand-
0: stand-up comedians all all come from some sort of, you know, trouble. Everything that that in my life comes from a very positive and optimistic place. And I try to do that with my kids. You know, the number one thing is that I don't own them. They're not my possession, that they're their own people and that they could always do whatever they want. And I want to be there to support them. And my parents always said to me, look, you know, just get educated. We don't care what you do in life, just get an education so that at least, you know, it's something that nobody could ever take that away from you. And you all, have it, And I right. kind of felt that way with my kids that I'm never going to push them into what I do. They know what I do. If they're excited, great. If they're not, that's fine. This is my life, not theirs. Just like I've been exposed to a lot of things, you know, my goal was to expose them to things as well. And so that they could find the things in life that they're passionate about. And again, I'm very blessed, you know, you know, I I don't, I don't try to hide it. Like my kids are never going to go hungry. They're never going to be without shelter, you know, and I've had this discussion with them and they're not entitled, you know, they don't act that way. They don't feel that way, but they've been able to pursue their paths knowing that, you know, that me and my ex and my ex is absolutely wonderful. We're best of friends. It was, she's, she's the most extraordinary woman and mom out there. And also is a very, you know, kind of a huge driver for them also, but that they were always going to be supported, you know, that they can follow their path and their dream and know that, you know, if they get knocked down, we'll be there and that they can take their chance with their own life to pursue something that can make them excited, but also change the world if they feel like that's something that they want to do. Yeah, they're just incredible. And now they're more like my best friend's. That's,
1: great. My kids. Well, Garrett, That's uh, As we close out here, I, you did mention at the top that this is something you maybe wanted to get into just a little bit more because, you know, recently we did lose your partner in crime in the wizard experience all throughout, which was Pat McCallum. And you, you mentioned how much you admired his creativity and all those things. I don't know. Is there like a particular Pat memory that always stands out to you? Or is there something that you would specifically point to and just say, oh, this is what it was all about with Pat?
0: Yeah, it's just so sad and tragic. I I think when the world kind of loses extraordinary people, you know, sometimes they're famous, sometimes they're not. I think Pat was one of those absolutely extraordinary creative geniuses out there, you know, that the world just lost and may or may not know about. We were kids growing up and Wizard is the most magical experience that anybody could have gone through, you know, and people are always like, bring it back and this and that and you know, that's not to say that some something couldn't happen, but it was a magical time, you know, and it took this confluence of events to happen all simultaneously in order for that to happen. And that was Pat, you know, and me and the team, you know, that we put together. But Pat, he had the greatest heart. He always looked out for people around him. He was just extraordinary, whether it was the customers in the store or the fans that we'd see at the shows he was just i think a lot a lot misunderstood by people that didn't know him or knew of him but didn't know him and uh yeah i just can't say enough about him i you know he was very hard to stay in touch with i mean a lot of people kind of reached out and wanted to be in touch he was he was hard for that to happen my dad had passed away a few years prior to pat passing away so i i, I reached out to pat because he was very close with my dad and he was really kind of a part of our family because pat really didn't have a strong family to the point where like pat would literally come over to our house for thanksgiving dinners and you know there wasn't a part of my you know growing up that i don't think about what an integral part of that he was so i i kind of had this conversation with pat about my dad so pat wrote me and my brother as a story about something with my dad you know, mm. kind of a memory that we had all forgotten, you know, that Pat had reminded us about. And it was just such a kind of wonderful kind of walk down memory lane, you know, to see kind of from Pat's perspective uh, how much he loved my dad and my family. And then, yeah, I mean, I I, I try to stay in touch with him and reach back out because I, I, I had been thinking about collaborating with Pat on something. Because I thought it would be kind of perfect if we wanted to recreate a, a, a new type of magic together. But it just never got to that point. And, you know, I wish he was still with us. Um, and I've, I hope that uh, people around him felt that way as well. But yeah, it was just one of the most extraordinary, magical times. And it couldn't have happened without him. I mean, he was such a huge driving force and a huge force in nature, you know, that just, you know, it, it required that. It required the vision that I had. It required the vision that he had. It required the force of nature that he was and the force of nature that I was and, and the people that we surrounded ourselves by. Not to say that we didn't have a few bad eggs along the way, but it required the vision that we both had kind of mixed together, you know, for it to happen. And wow. uh, yeah, so just one of the most extraordinary people that that's ever been in my life. And I've met some of the most extraordinary, most creative people in the world. I'm um, Pat ranks
1: up there with
2: them. That's wow.
1: amazing. Wow. Thank that's, you for sharing that.
2: That's awesome. Really incredible. So we, we had touched a little bit about your art in the beginning And I want to sort of round out, like, you know, I actually, I I love seeing your posts about your art on Instagram. And I think it's such a unique style. And we want to know what kind of cool projects you have coming up. And and I want to hear a little bit about how you got into this art style and so on. Thank you. You know, the art, unlike
0: Wizard, even though it's personal, I never took it personally, right? Because I had to always move forward. And I couldn't let what people said about me deter me in any possible way because Wizard was 100% about believing in myself and my vision, you know, and obviously everybody else, but I couldn't be detracted, you know, in what it needed to be and where it needed to go and what anybody said or thought about me or it at the time. Art is a little different. Art became a very kind of personal journey for me to be able to express myself in a way that I couldn't express through Wizard and the magazine. So my art started probably about a little over probably eight years ago. It might be coming up on nine years ago, where I kind of got to this point in my life where when Wizard was very successful and the Comic Cons were very successful, I had a lot of friends or people that I thought were friends, you know, that were really taking advantage of me because mm-hmm. as you can imagine, we can make almost anything successful. If we wrote about it or we featured it at the Comic-Cons, yeah. that was it. Everybody paid attention and it was off to the races. And what I found was that a lot of people that I thought were my friends were not, that were just using me because of what I could do for them and not me for who I was. And it wasn't just one or two instances, it was rampant you know, in my life of how many people treated me that way. So I was thinking about, you know, becoming a writer, you know, and being able to write because I have friends that are some of the biggest film producers and TV producers in the history of the world. So I was like, hey, why don't I create some of my own stories that I could tell in film and television? But I didn't have the discipline. I had the ideas, but not the discipline, although I'm developing the discipline now. I, I didn't have the discipline at the time. But then I had this idea on painting and in this thought of I'm not somebody who needs or wants anybody's sympathy. I'm not in that category where I want someone to feel bad for me. Right. So I was like, well, how do I proactively reach out to people? Because what had happened was in that process of me being taken advantage of by all these people, I thought to myself, well, it's not my nature to retreat. It's my nature to be very out there. And I'm a very people person and wanting to be, meet new people and become friends and learn things and experience things and to retrench and to not reach out to people is not my nature. So my art was thinking about it was like, well, what can I do and use art to reach out to people? And that all of a sudden in that thought process of reaching out, it was like, it was literally even this hand gesture of like, well, how do I get the paint to do this, to extrude off the canvas? And I was like, wow, if I can get the paint to extrude off the canvas, that's my ability to reach out to people and to reach out to the viewers of my work. And that's when it hit me. And it took me six months to kind of take that process and perfect it to the point where I can start creating. And then all my pieces are about positive and and journey and energy and, and all the very positive things you know, that my life has been about is taking this idea of reaching out to people and sharing this positivity and this journey and this energy, you know, with them. And that became my art. It's kind of funny because when I talk to people, I'm like, I tell them I'm a professional painter and artist. They're like, oh, you, you paint comics? And I'm like, no, I can't paint <laughs> heroes. I'm like, you can't compare me to Jim Lee, right? So, I, right. and I've had this joke with Jim. I tell him all the time, I'm like when people ask me if I if I could draw comic books, I'm like, no, you think I can compete with this guy? You know, <laughs> Jim, you know, so I kind of use him as my example. But, you know, when you look at comic book art and comic book artists that have become successful, it's not always the people who are the best artists who become successful. It's the artists that have something unique, right? And that's what I tell people, and as you would imagine, I know thousands of people over the years that could draw Batman perfectly, but who are they? Like, there's thousands of them. But when you look at, you know, people that have become iconic over time, they don't need to sign their art for you to know who made it. Yeah. Um, the Frank
2: Millers, yeah, the Todd before, Frank, the Jim.
0: Yeah, you don't know. and yeah. you see all these kinds of people, when you see Sam Keith, the Kelly John, like there's a million, I could rack up a million, a lot of guys or women that when you look at their art, I don't need a signature to know who did it. Right. And those are the people that become successful. Somebody that have been able to do something unique, not better, but unique and uniquely identifiable to them. So to me, it was also in the idea of creating art how can I create a process that's uniquely identifiable to me? So I can't tell you how many times I have friends sending me pictures of, they went to this museum, they saw this picture, they they saw this in a book, they saw this at a fair, they saw something and they'd be like, it reminds me of you, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, to be able to create something that's uniquely identifiable to me was also something, you know, not to get a little too deep into it, but the other thing that's kind of fascinating to me about the fine art world is how my work does get read, in the sense that you know I've, I've met some some pretty extraordinary people in the art world, you know that have been lifelong collectors or or advisors or collect you know or just gallerists you know, and they could tell me about myself just from looking at my paintings, and I'm wow. like, how the hell do you know this about me? Like I've never talked about this, I've never expressed this but yet they can read me like a book by looking at my art. And I don't know how. And then it's the same thing when people look at my art, it makes them feel good and have this positive optimism. And again, I don't know how people see it, but yet it's there and people feel it. And that to me, I, I don't know how I've been able to accomplish that with my art, but I have, and and that is really makes me feel so good to That's be able cool. to have that kind of impact.
2: And, and I like the idea of, you know, your art is there to cultivate positivity and and because like, I feel like the world needs some sort of optimism right now. There's so much chaos going on to have that sort of positive energy and, and optimism and, you know, hope, if you will, is is, is a big deal right now.
0: You know, I, I've used this word uh, permission a lot in our conversation and and I use it in the art world as well, you know, because... You can always look at the bad things that are going on and say, this is life, you know, but yet there's so much good things in life and there's so much to be grateful for, you know, and a lot of times people don't want to be able to share the good things when they know other people are might be going through some bad things. And one of the last shows I did, I called it permission because it was like giving permission for people to feel good about themselves or what they have or their family or what they're grateful for. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of times people they need somebody else or something else in their life to let them know that it's okay to enjoy something, you Mm -hmm. know, that they don't have to just always be negative or feel bad or, or just because someone else might be suffering that they're not allowed to, to feel good about themselves. So, yeah, so that's a big part uh, of that. You know, as far as showing, um, I, I just, uh, I, I lived in California for a few years and just moved back to New York. So now I've been able to set up my new art studio. So I'm going to be a little bit more prolific and then I'm going to start doing um, some more art fairs coming up, you know, hopefully uh, starting between the beginning and middle of next year. I'm going to start uh, getting out there with some new pieces that I've been working on. That's uh, going to be exciting to show it. That's oh, awesome.
2: So. so we jokingly used the word official earlier in the podcast, <laughs> but I I want to ask if you could anoint us as the official wizard podcast. (laughs) I'm not getting any more legal letters.
0: uh, I don't know if this uh, random house owns official podcast. You guys have done a great job. You know, I see you pop up on all my socials and it's just such a, a wonderful walk down memory lane, you know, to kind of see what we were doing at some point in time. Uh, what we were thinking about, what may have been interesting or hot at that time. So, yeah, thank you for what you've been doing, keeping it alive. You know, we we made so many people happy over the years, you know, so it's just kind of wonderful for you to keep that alive for people.
2: Uh, and uh, yeah, so thank you so much for that. Thank you. That means a lot to us. I mean, seriously, when I any time we mention the word wizard, people all have a story. They they all still love it. They miss it. They oh, I had this issue. I had that issue. Yada. Like it it sparks more conversation than I can possibly even wrap my head around. And that's so much to do with you and your vision and and just. This love of art and entertainment and creatives and so on. So kudos to you for all that. So yeah,
0: thank you. It's 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 really extraordinary. Kind of the impact that it's had, and, and you don't you don't realize it until many years uh, later. You mm-hmm. know, because at the time you just don't see it or feel it. It was only even after maybe ten years where I felt like we were making a dent in the magazine world i mean it took 10 years for the magazine world to even recognize wow. you know that we were a player in in our world even if we weren't the biggest magazine we were dominant in our area yeah and then also kind of we ha- we had such a warm place in people's hearts you know that it's impossible to kind of recapture that, especially in today's day and age, because because we live in such a fast-moving society. So to to have that affinity that that or that warmth that we've created for people, you know, even just the funny story. Um, you guys know who Gary V is? No, no. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah, he's a he's a pretty big guy in the media business. Uh, big investor, owns a huge uh, marketing agency. He's got something called V Friends. He's got probably. 20, 30 million followers uh, or more around the world wow. on Tenkai. And one day I, I reached out to him. I wanted to work with him on a project. And uh, so I finally, after four or five conversations with people on his team, they're like, all right, you're ready to talk to Gary. I was like, great. So Gary's notorious for kind of being on Zoom on his cell phone in his car because he shoots a lot <laughs> of videos that way. So he gets on there and he's talking and and you look at his office and he's got uh trading cards comics and wrestling he's got a little bit of everything he's you know he's constantly doing going to garage sales and buying beanie babies it's like you could tell he's a massive collector very very successful guy so he gets on his phone and he's like uh, hey Gary." he goes you got five minutes i was like all right it's gonna <laughs> okay. be quick he talks very fast so i said hey you know i know that that you were into comics as a kid i'm like "Do you remember wizard magazine he goes of course i said i started wizard he's like no way he goes what year was that 1991 i said yes he goes image he goes you made him, I'm like, yes, you know, it was very kind of symbiotic relationship. back. There. He's like, yeah, he's like, unbelievable. You had, you had uh, McFarlane Spider-Man on the cover one. I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh my God. He's like, Gary yeah, He's like, you don't have to explain who you are. Like, what do you want to do? He's like, this is incredible. Like, and within, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, I had this bond with him that would normally be impossible to get because he's inundated and bombarded by so many people, whether it's, entertainers or, or athletes or whatever, you know, that there's so many people in and around his life that to be able to pierce through that and have a place in his heart would be near impossible. But that affinity that he had towards wizard and the impact that it had on his childhood is irreplaceable. So anyway, that call turned into 21 minutes and, uh, and then subsequently I've, you know, met and hung out and, you know, spent a lot more time with him. But it just goes to show that no matter who you are in this world, that if you were into this, you know, and you were into Wizard, you know, that that we've had such a tremendous impact on you and your taste, you know, and
2: uh, we had just, uh, just a, a really great impact on, on in your heart and it's kind of funny so like Adam used to have a previous podcast and and I was a guest one time a couple times we, we chatted about movies and stuff like that and we had this similar affinity to comics and I remember it was four years ago in October he sends me a text message he's like hey do you remember Wizard Magazine I'm like of course I remember Wizard Magazine he goes you want to start a podcast about it I was like sure what the hell why not and we started the podcast and then somebody tweets at us and goes you know there's so many issues you're going to be doing this for at least nine years I'm like I signed up for a nine year podcast.
0: Yeah. A and, nice, nice run.
2: Nice run. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you guys kept it going. And fortunately, like we have such a great relationship. He lives in Montana. I live in Long Island. But we chat every day. We do this show. And we have found so many people that just connect with this and connect with us. And it's it blows my mind. And my last question really for you, and I, I ask this to my students a lot. What does being successful mean to you? What defines successful?
0: I, th- I think it's, it's two things. It's impact and freedom. So the two things are, one is impact, you know, and and the ability to affect other people in a positive way. You know, and a lot of times it might be one person and a lot of times it could be a billion people. You know, I, I think that we created a movement, you know, in the geek and nerd space and in the superhero world to make people feel like, you know, what they're doing is good and it's fun and it's acceptable and it's great. And to have that self-confidence in what they are and what they do and that there's a lot of people like them that enjoy this stuff. So to have that kind of impact and not just in a momentary way, but in a forever kind of way that we impacted people Forever, you know, quick story on impact. I saw Billy Tucci recently and uh, he introduced me to his kid. And uh, when he introduced me to his son, he said, this is Garib, he's the one that bought our house for us. You know, and I still get chills and goosebumps every time I, I say that because it's like, I had no idea, you know, that we had that type of impact, you know, and, and Billy met his wife through the, the comics, right? Like, and, but his whole life that we had such an impact in Billy's life, you know, that he could be at a place where he felt comfortable having kids and then growing up and then feeling secure. It's just one example of, you know, the impact that we created for one person that that is a lifetime or generational, you know, for somebody. And those are the kind of stories that are starting to come about now, only after that. Um, And then freedom in that I'm not beholden to anybody. You know, I can come and go and do anything I want in my life. I wake up and I don't have to answer to somebody. Um, I don't have to tell somebody what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. I don't have to explain myself. And I have that freedom to kind of live my life the way I want to live. And I'm grateful for that every single day when I wake up and when I go to bed. I really feel blessed in my life that I have that freedom. I want the success of this freedom to be able to do that. You know and then that allows me to create impact out there and some things work some things don't work but at least i have you know the freedom to be able to to try that
2: incredible i mean i could talk to you all day i was like bl- bl- blown away by your story i know i know we
0: do an hour <laughs> went to but, uh, but i love talking about the stuff and and especially when i know that people are really passionate about something i mean there's nothing that gets me more excited
1: we really appreciate the time Yeah, we
2: really do it means the world to us so thank you so much for being on our show and talking to us and sharing your memories and and just a lot of your just insight on things it was just incredible so thank you so much thanks guys
1: Michael, what an interview. Just thank you to Garib Sheamus for your time, for giving us those insights, those little pieces of wizard history that we've been wanting to hear about uh, from the horse's mouth. I mean, right there, (laughs) direct from the source, you know? And he was so great, you know, even joking about himself and just being genuinely
2: open to anything. It was an amazing conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it. It was a joy for us and look forward to many more down the line of other artists we have coming on and creatives and and just incredible people that you're going to want to hear about from Wizard and just hear their memories. If
1: you want to check out the history of Wizard magazine as gear of reference, we've been doing this a long time. He's been checking in and it was bringing up memories for him. We have over 250 episodes of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, our main episodes, our half episodes, all of these where we get into every issue of Wizard magazine in detail, having great conversations with great guests who have their own memories and passion for it to share. Sometimes the people who helped create Wizard magazine are sitting in on an issue. It's like, oh, yeah, well, this and this, and you got to know this about this. So all of that is there at WizardsComics.com. Of course, you can also find it in all your favorite podcatching apps. You know, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, everywhere you need to be. Also, just want to give you a heads up that there is a special video component of this interview that we will be sharing. There are clips that will be hitting social media and our YouTube channel. So if you go to the Wizards, the Podcast Guide to Comics YouTube channel, you'll actually be able to see an exclusive video of Garib's. Sharing the very first issue of Wizard. No, not the one with the McFarland cover. This was the first price guide ash can that he put out while they were still running the comic book store and that was sent out all over the place. It's amazing to hear him go through it, explain each part of it. So make sure that you're checking into our YouTube channel as well. Get subscribed over there. Also, make sure that you check in with us on social media. We're on acts at Wizards Comics. We're on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. We're on Blue Sky everywhere you want to find us a facebook and a threads so like we're we're all over the
2: place now which is pretty wild um we have a t public store where you can get great merch and much much more we also have a patreon so if you really want to go deep into wizard and you want to see the back issues we have scans of the issues on patreon as well as bonus episodes about superhero comic book movies where we talk about some of the movies we loved growing up some of the ones that we really didn't love but, you know all kinds of cool stuff and
1: that's all exclusively on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics. $5 a month gets you access to all that. What it also gets you access to are uncut early release episodes, which includes an uncut version, both audio and video, of this interview with Garib Sheamus. Stuff you're not seeing on YouTube, stuff you're not hearing on the podcast. There are extra little bits here and there that you are going to want to check out. So get on over there to Patreon.com where we love our official geeks and all they do to help support the show again we thank you for your support in giving this episode a listen but hey until next time keep your books bagged and boarded